We have been going through a series called This is Hope over the last three weeks, looking at sort of our main identity as a church. We are a multi-congregational church called Hope Alliance, a congregation here in Nazareth, congregation of Bethlehem. We're both going through the same series, same teaching series, This is Hope, looking at our identity of simply Jesus. And then taking the next couple weeks to look through sort of our sort of priorities, our passions as to how we live out this identity of simply Jesus. And so we talked a couple weeks ago about gospel saturation, how we want everything we, we do uh, to be intentionally saturating us in the gospel because it's something that we need to stay in repeatedly to understand and actually have it soak into our minds and our hearts. And then last week we talked about what is probably the thing that you've most ex- experienced here without even realizing it in casual depth. That, that we want it to be easy for people to see Jesus, but it's not as easy to stay with him. That we need depth to actually be rooted in Jesus. And so we're constantly trying to balance that thing of, of making it easy to see Jesus, but going deep intentionally right from the get-go to help people put down deep roots. Well, today uh, we're going to be talking about our passion of genuine connections. Authentic, if you want to think about the word genuine, authentic, real, not hypocritical, genuine connections with God, with one another, and with Uh, what I would say is our calling, our individual unique calling as Jesus followers, Um, because it is super important to us as a church, because what we find, and maybe you found this as well, that in the world, there's a whole lot of fake. Last time I preached this, I didn't get to use this term, a lot of fake news, right? Fake Instagram accounts, Instagram accounts that are full of fake, you know it. In our home, uh, we have some folks who are trying to avoid dairy over the last couple years, which has meant a whole bunch of fake dairy, which is terrible almost on every front. Like, eggplant parm is terrible as it is. Yes, it is. Now add on fake cheese, and somehow it's gone from like, what you thought was bad has gotten worse. Listen, if a meal is going to be parm, it should be chicken, okay? (laughs) That's just... That's, that's our fifth key priority, all right, is chicken parm. <laughs> but there's too much fake, right? There's just so much fake in the world. But the truth of the matter is we also exhibit a lot of fakeness, if we're honest, with ourselves. We do a lot of hiding, a lot of little lies, posturing, and then it It translates into the world of religion, into our walk with God. We tend to be fake with God, hide from God, lie to ourselves, fake with others. For years, I struggled to remember people's names, and I would would hide from that. I wouldn't admit that. I just wouldn't go there. And eventually, I was like, "Why, why am I hiding about this? I should just be, like, honest and say, like, like, but we're faking, right? Like, I'm faking it. I'm faking my way through it. Um, so if I don't remember your names, I'm trying. I really am. But not this congregation, I know well at this point. We have this tendency to lie and to hide and to fake things, try to fake it through life and, and not being genuine with God, with ourselves, with others, or even with our calling and the way that we work it out. And what I would argue is we end up living in disintegrated lives. It's compartmentalized. And it becomes this game of trying to manage, hiding with this person, being honest with this person, not letting them see this thing over here, protecting ourselves here, but being open and vulnerable over here. 
And if you slow down and think about your life, you'll realize that we all do this in so many ways. We don't want to be fully known, except we do, but we don't. So we hide, and we don't want to be vulnerable, and what's often at work in that, really, at the root of that, is shame. I'm, I'm going to be stealing a lot today. The thoughts are all in my head uh, from a book I just read called The Soul of Shame by Kurt Thompson. Uh, definitely recommend it, but just I don't want to plagiarize anything, but it's, I'm liable to use his words without realizing it, and so I just want to be upfront to say that a lot of this has been formed by the thinking that I've read in a couple of his books. Um, yeah, the guy's name's Kurt Thompson. But we end up hiding in shame. And, and, and because of shame, we're scared to be honest and vulnerable and we want to hide and, and lie and we posture and we do all these things. We end up being fake. And rather than having like good, honest, genuine relationships with one another or with God, it's this compartmentalized, disintegrated weirdness. And I would argue that a lot of our stress in life is because of the hiding. And Jesus warned about this. He warned about what would happen if this disingenuine, uh, disingenuous relationship found its way into the people of God. And quoting from Isaiah, who had said it hundreds of years earlier about the people of Israel, Jesus warned his listeners, his followers, the Pharisees who were listening in, uh, he warned them as well to say, in uh, Matthew 15, to say that this people, they, they honor me with their lips but their hearts are far from me. They're doing the thing. They're saying the right things, but internally there's a hiding taking place. They don't want to draw near to me. They want to do the right thing and say the right thing and go to church and pay the tithes and do other things, but their heart is actually at a distance from me. It was a disingenuous relationship in Israel, and then Jesus is warning even in the New Testament church era to be careful about this. And so it is core and key to us and such a deep priority of ours that we have genuine, real, honest relationships with God and self. The self's always involved. God and self, others and self, and our calling and our self. And so to sort of understand this, though, I think we have to go back. We have to go all the way back to our first ancestors, to our first parents, to Adam and Eve, to understand where this is rooted all right, so there's this good creation that ends up being infiltrated with shame and sin and, and hiddenness, and everything breaks. Everything becomes disintegrated because of it. If you remember, God is creating everything for five days, and on the sixth day, he gets to the creation of the animals and everything, and the culmination of which is the creation of mankind, humankind, Adam, humanity, man, woman. These are created, and if you remember, they're created in whose image? God's. Genesis tells us that the first humanity is created in God's image. And I would argue that God in the Trinity in himself is relational, which relationship is vulnerable, is it not? We have this vulnerable God creating people in his image who are also vulnerably in relationship with one another. There's a purity of life between them and God and them and one another. They are co-creators with God who are given a vocation to manage the earth. And so you have these people who look and seem like God, who are acting like him, who are in relationship, in purity, and they're working with him to co-create, to manage the earth, to 
procreate, to fill the earth. And they're partnering with God in this way. And what's fascinating, Genesis 1, 2, both give the creation accounts sort of from different lenses. When you get to the very last verse in Genesis 2, it says a fascinating thing. Kurt Thompson says they could have picked any word here, but they say this. They were naked and felt no shame. Fascinating. Pure, innocent, naked, vulnerable, totally vulnerable, and yet felt no shame. Nothing was hidden, literally. No shame. Then you get to chapter 3. Creation, fall, right? Fall is the, the second part of the narrative. And you see these seeds of shame are sown by God's enemy. See, God's enemy uses shame to disintegrate the creation, us, you, me, churches, people, whole people groups. And the enemy of God comes on the scene and he's sowing these seeds of doubt into Eve's mind and into Adam's mind, I believe, as well, saying, you know, did, did God really say that? Did God really say that about that tree that like, you, you shouldn't have from that? It seems like maybe, maybe God is trying to withhold from you. Maybe, maybe there's actually a distance between you and God that you didn't realize. Maybe you're not good enough for God. But if you just did this thing, then you would be equal with God, and then, and then it would be good. He's using shame, and he's using doubt to sort of pull them and separate them away from God, and that feeling starts to creep up inside of them, and they're like, yeah, maybe he's right. Maybe we aren't good enough. Maybe we aren't enough. Isn't that at the root of shame? I'm not good enough. I'm, I'm not enough. This idea of separation, of abandonment from God, and he's saying, you need to be worried about that. Actually, it would just be good if you could become equal with God, and then you wouldn't have to worry about that abandonment anymore. It's at the root of shame. And and they give into this, and they take of the tree of the knowledge of, of good and evil, and they end up living in shame. <laughs> Genesis 2.25 ends with them being naked and not ashamed, and yet now what is the first thing they do? <gasps> We're naked. Now they notice it, and they're ashamed. And they run, and they do what? They cover themselves. Welcome to our first hiding as humanity, covering themselves up. They don't want to be vulnerable, because they, they realize all of a sudden that they are. The innocence is lost. And then what do they do? They run from there and they hide from God. He comes into the garden and says, where are you? God knows where they are. He's asking the question, not because he doesn't know, but he's asking the question because he's in relationship and he's prompting them to come towards him. This is what questions do, right? He's trying to engage them, but they're hiding and they're like, we realized we were naked and we hid. So there's this shame that comes on the scene. And isn't this, isn't this the way that shame works? Shame starts because we're afraid that we're going to be left alone, that we're going to be rejected. So we start to live in not being open and vulnerable, and we hide, but then it becomes this self-fulfilling prophecy because what happens? They end up alone, afraid, hiding. Friends, this is the, the cycle of shame. And it breaks in Eden. It breaks the, the integrated life that God was giving to them. 
And everything has been disintegrated since then. And now we do the same thing. We live in the same way. Our lives, if we're honest, often consist of the same kind of hiding and compartmentalizing. The covering up, the putting on of the figurative fig leaves of our jobs, of our families, of we got to make sure our kids succeed in this way so that we're not ashamed. We got to make sure I get this promotion so that I'm not ashamed. I got to get these good grades so that I'm not rejected and abandoned. I have to look a certain way. I have to promote a certain thing on social media so that, so that I'm not rejected and abandoned. It's all rooted in shame and doubt and not being integrated with God in the gospel, I would argue. We bring it into religion, and we're not honest with God. We don't want to tell him about all these things, or we feel like he does know these things about us, so we hide, and we're not honest with ourselves, or, or we have these doubts and these fears, and then so we don't want to be honest with God about that, that we're actually struggling with something, even though the scriptures are full of people who are openly struggling with God. We try to act more faithful than we actually are, so that then God will bless us, because look at me, aren't I being strong? And, but we're not honest with him that we're actually afraid or struggling at something. We are not genuine regularly disingenuous with God. And then we try to resist vulnerability with others because we don't want them to see these things about us. We don't want them to know about that skeleton in my closet from all the way back then, that terrible thing that I did with that person or that, that, that lying that I did all those years ago. You know, I don't want to bring that up. It's in the past. I just want to leave it back there. Can I just ask you to think about something? This was a thought that struck me this week. Can you be fully loved if you're not fully known? Does your significant other, does that, that parent, that sibling, that friend, that boyfriend, that spouse, whatever, can they fully love you if they don't really know everything about you? Just a just something to think about. I've been wrestling, I've been just like wrestling with that all week. But we resist vulnerability. We resist being genuine because we're scared of actually being known. We're ashamed of these things, either ongoing or in the past. And I would argue that what that does is it leads us to living a disintegrated life. Compartmentalized, not actually being fully us the way that God designed us to be way back when. So I want to help us today process this a little bit through the lens of what does a genuine connection with God look like? And that fueling a genuine connection with other people, which then fuels a genuine connection to being like fully alive, fully ourselves, living into our calling to be co-creators made in the image of God, bringing about beauty and goodness in the world. All right, so if you have a copy of the scriptures, turn to 1 John 5. I want to... I'm going to kind of blaze through these things here uh, today, but I want to help us just process this as best as I can. Let's think about genuine connection with God, right? Now, there's some things I'm going to take for granted in this conversation. Uh, one would be that in, in a church setting, the majority of us, maybe not, I'm sure not everyone, but the majority of us would say like, yeah, okay, like I'm... I am broken in a way. Like there's a, I have sin that, that does sort of put a distance between me and God or me and other people. Right? And I, I know you might not all believe that. That's fine. But just for the sake of the argument today, we're, we're going with that. So John, who has met Jesus, this is what the first four verses are about. We met him. We saw him. We touched him. We lived life with him. He was here on earth, God in person. 
He says, I'm writing these things so that your joy can be complete. Like, I want you to have joy, he's telling the church. So then verse 5, he says, this is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light, and there is absolutely no darkness in him. If we say we have fellowship with him, and yet we walk in the darkness, we are lying. So he's saying if we're with God and we walk in the darkness, if we walk in sin, then we're lying and not practicing the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So John is basically painting a picture in which he's saying, if you walk with God and have fellowship with him, you're going to intentionally walk in the light. If you're walking in the darkness, intentionally walking in the darkness, you're not fully walking with God. And he says, and if you say you don't have sin, well, then you're making him out to be a liar. So we have to admit that we have sin. And when we admit that we have sin... We confess this to God. He says he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to, through the blood of Jesus, to, to cover us. And there's a whole theory of atonement we can get into there. But the, the point being today is that when we are honest, we admit that we are broken. We admit that there is this, this sinful sort of darkness in our hearts. Now, it might not work out in, in the ways that, like, we would say, oh, well, I'm not you know, as bad as that person. I'm not bad as this thing. But like we, when we're honest, we know that it's in there. And it comes out in different ways. And envy and lust, pride, hate, whatever. The rage, it's, just, it's inside of there. It's inside of our hearts. And, and John is saying when we are honest about it, he says God doesn't run away. He says God moves towards you in the person of Jesus and brings forgiveness atones for it, makes up for it, redeems you out of it, and says it's gone, it's covered, the guilt has been removed. He's saying, bring it into the light. Well, that's the opposite of hiding, is it not? We hide in the dark. And, and John's saying, no, 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 you, I, I want you to experience joy. I'm writing this so that you will have joy and have complete joy. You know what you need to do? Bring it into the light. That would be the totally genuine thing to do, to be like, I am a mess in all these ways, God. I need you. I don't want to live in the dark. I want an integrated life. I'm bringing this into the light. And what we find is that he forgives. And so if we're going to have a genuine relationship with God, it starts with admitting, confessing, owning the fact that like, yeah, I'm going to be honest about my sin where I'm off, where I'm broken, where I'm not living up to the image of God that he created me to be. And what we find is that he forgives. But can I just say this as well, that we also can be honest with God about our struggles? That we don't necessarily feel like believing all of this at all the times? That we're struggling in our doubt? We're struggling when we see the pain in the world? And what God does for us is, is the Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews says, is draw near to God and he will draw near to you. 
Even in our confusion, in our struggles, if we draw near to God, he says, I will draw near to you. He doesn't say, well, I'm now going to abandon you because you don't have enough faith. I'm out. To draw near to God, even in our struggles, even in our, in our doubts, with our whole heart. And this is why we talk all the time about, we don't just want a religious exercise in which our lips are praising him, but our hearts are far from him. Listen, if you're struggling, that's okay. God can handle that. He's big enough. This week, man, I just had some, some stuff going on just in my own heart that I was, I was like angry with God. Angry. I haven't been angry with God in a long time. And, and my, my prayer time, I think it was Wednesday morning, consisted of me like yelling at God. I don't say that to be like, hey, look at me, aren't I great? Like, I'm just telling you that because Thursday was like, it had been like cathartic. I was like, okay, I'm not trying to fake it with God. And he's not trying to fake it with me because he didn't come back yelling. He was actually kind of quiet, like normal. But he could handle it. He can handle our struggles. He can handle our doubts. So gospel repentance, the turning, is about being honest with self and God. Shame says, keep God at a distance. Don't bring him into this picture. Separate yourself from him further. Thompson in his book says, that's exactly what the enemy wants you to do. Talk, talk about God. Keep him out there. You can talk about him, but don't talk with him. Wouldn't that have been good if Adam and Eve in that situation had said, yeah, hold on, we're going to go talk to somebody. But instead they just talk about God. They don't actually talk with God. And so in our struggles and in our sin, what we need to do is talk with God, not just about him. That's religion. We talk with God. That's relationship. And God promises to draw near to us. And what we find is that rather than a God who rejects us or who says with expectancy, come on up here, First John tells us, no, 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 perfect love casts out fear. We don't need to fear being abandoned. We don't need to fear the rejection because God says, I move towards you. I want relationship with you. Come to me in the sin and in the struggle, genuinely, honestly, openly. Bring it into the light, all of it. I know about it anyway. And I love you anyway. Bring it into the light. Come be with me. Be in relationship with me. Move towards me and I will move towards you. And what we find at least my experience, and maybe you have experiences as well, what I find is that when, I am, when I'm good with God, I don't mean like good like, oh, I'm holy. I mean like when I'm, in a, when I'm feeling integrated with God in all my ways. I'm not hiding with God. Do you know what it then leads me to in relationship with others? Vulnerability. I don't, I, and I've said this before, and I mean this in the nicest possible way. When I know what God thinks of me, I don't care as much about what everyone else thinks of me. Wouldn't that be nice? Isn't that a freeing feeling? That's how we're meant to be, friends. Not callous, not mean, not flippant with others, still loving, but saying, I know who I am in God. I'm clean, I'm good, I'm forgiven. There's nothing in hiding between me and God. We are good. So I'm not worried about posturing before you because, I don't know, God, <laughs> I got him. But what it leads us then to be able to do is actually have a genuine connection with other people. I'm not hiding from the God of the universe who has moved towards me and for me, which means I can be honest with you. I can tell you what's going on in my life. See, friends, this is what a gospel-saturated environment produces. 
is not shame, it's vulnerability, it's transparency, it's open. Look with me at James. James is talking, it's interesting, this passage is about healing, about physical healing. But look what he says, about what he calls us to with one another, about having a genuine relationship. He says, is anyone among you suffering? He should pray. Is anyone cheerful? He should sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? He should call for the elders of the church, the leaders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer of faith will save the sick person, and the Lord will raise him up. If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another, and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is very powerful in its effect or in its, in its working. James is telling us that somehow there's this connection between, now I wouldn't say always, but oftentimes there's a physiological connection between physical ailments and hidden sin. I mean, psychologists would tell you this, like the, the mind connects to the body. James was telling us this 2,000 years ago. That physiologically, sometimes there's something deeply rooted inside of us that, that we're hiding and it is literally making us sick. And he says, confess your sins to one another. Bring it into the light. Get it out. Friends, I would hope and I want and I, my, my passion as a church is that we would be a people who are honest with one another. That we are confessing regularly to one another about what is going on in our hearts the sin, the brokenness, the pain, and the struggles, the doubts, the fears, the concerns, and bringing them into the light and finding healing. Honest with one another, confessing our sin, being vulnerable. Friends, it's the only way to find healing, is being honest about what's happening internally, instead of hiding all of the time, actually being genuine. In our struggles, being honest with them, with people saying, can you please have faith for me this week because I don't have enough? I'm tired, I'm scared, I'm afraid. Pray with me, pray for me. I got nothing. That's okay. That's okay to be that kind of Christian. That's actually what it means to be a God-fearing Christian, is to be honest about our sin and our struggles. Gospel saturation, this is why this matters so much to us. Gospel saturation produces that kind of church body, that kind of family who are willing to go to bat for one another and struggle with one another for the sake of the gospel. To speak grace to one another when sin is confessed, when someone's been walking away from the gospel, gently calling them back to it with love and with mercy. Thompson says in his book, shamed people shame people. Let that sink in. Shamed people shame people. Maybe you've been part of families that have done this. Maybe you've been part of churches that have done this. Friends, that is not freedom. That is not love. That is not what we are called to in the gospel. What I would argue is that people who have found grace give grace. You understand? People who know that they have a genuine connection with God and have found freedom then say, yeah, I want this for you. Yeah, you did mess that up, you bonehead. I love you anyway because Jesus loves you. You're forgiven. Now, it doesn't mean that there's not accountability. It doesn't mean that there's not standards and protocols. It doesn't mean that people don't need like serious repentance and reconciliation practices put in place 
But people who've received grace then know how to give grace to people around them as opposed to shame people who then go on just shaming people. I had a district superintendent, my current district superintendent, who said to me one time, Jim, we're called in the gospel to be transparent with everyone, vulnerable with a few. That's what I want for our congregation. Transparent, yeah, genuine, yes, vulnerable with a few. Because you, you don't need to share your story with everybody, okay? And your story might be best shared first in a clinical sense, to a counselor, to a therapist. you got, like, deep-rooted stuff in there that just needs to be worked through. I praise God for trained men and women who know how to get to that stuff. Because, like, I do my best, but, like, I'm not equipped to handle some of that stuff sometimes. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say, look, I'm going to walk with you through this, but I'm going to tell you that it needs to be a partnership with this professional over here. Transparent with everyone, vulnerable with a few. Might be a counselor first, okay? So I'm just, I just want to be clear about that. We don't need to go blabbing our stories to everyone immediately. But there is freedom in confession. There is freedom in bringing it into the light. Two years ago, uh, we just, Jess and I went through just, <laughs> you know, two years ago was kind of intense. Maybe you remember there was a pandemic going on. And um, we just had some just implosions uh, just in relationships. And um, we went through just, yeah, it was just, it was bad. It was really just incredibly stressful. But we felt like the enemy was using it to shame us. Bringing out things from our past that we were just, just using them against us in our own minds, through others. It was weird. It was weird. Demonic, I would say. And we read this book called Soul Care by Rob Reamer. Um, I kind of recommend it. Um, I just, I, anytime I can't fully endorse something, I want to say, like, read it, take what you can. Um, but in Reamer's book, he talked about just bringing everything into the light. And as we're reading it, we're like, uh, I don't know about that. I've known Jess for, I'm 43, I've known her for 30 years. Dating and married for most of those 30 years, believe it or not. There were things about me that she did not know. And I'm reading this book and after we, all the pain we just went through, I felt like Jesus was like, you need to tell her. I was like, mm-mm, mm-mm. And she looked at me and said, I'm not going anywhere. <sighs> That's freedom. It was like Jesus was looking at me saying that. Friends, we need to be that for one another. To allow one another the grace and the space to get it out. To confess the pain, the baggage that we've been carrying around for years, the sin, the shame, all of which disintegrates our lives. And the enemy is perfectly fine for us to keep that in the closet, keep it dark. What James calls us to, what we have in the scriptures repeatedly is a people who say, confess, Confess and find that your sins are forgiven. And yes, 100%, that is an internal personal dialogue with the God of the universe. But for some reason, he has seen fit to also have it work through out loud confession in the body of believers. It is terrifyingly true. 
find freedom in confession, by being genuine with one another, by being honest with one another about our struggles with our sin, transparent with everyone, vulnerable with a few. So how do we do that? (laughs) How do we do that? Well, scriptures say repent and believe. Repent and believe. And I would argue that that's almost a daily cycle. Repent and believe. Because daily we want to stay in the dark. We need to repent of it daily and believe something else. Repent of the sin, the hiding, the shame before God and before others, having a genuine connection. Now you're saying, I don't want to be vulnerable. Because, I mean, I'd hope that you're feeling that. Like, that makes me feel not so alone. Like, that we all feel that. Like, I don't want to be vulnerable. Can we just admit, we are the most vulnerable creatures on the earth? Every other animal is born with protective devices. Fur, hair, scales, shells, whatever. We are born naked. We got nothing. That's by design that our vulnerable God creates us intentionally vulnerable to need one another. Vulnerability, vulnerability, uh, I didn't bring the book, dang it. I I didn't bring my book I could quote from. Thompson talks about how vulnerability is is not an option. It's not an option of of like, I don't know if I want to do this. He's like, it just is. So then your decision is, how and when am I going to live into it? How and when am I going to consciously move into vulnerability to find freedom through confession, through being honest? through being open. So we need to repent of the hiding, of the darkness, of the being disingenuous, of of living compartmentalized lives where we don't want to tell people about all the stuff, where we don't want to let God in, we don't want to let other people in. We need to repent of that and believe something different. Well, what do we have to believe, right? What do we get to believe? Well, here's what I would argue. We get to believe what God is offering us, what he has purchased for us through the person of Jesus. Look what Hebrews 12 tells us to believe. This is uh, just, I mean, you want to memorize something. This is a great couple verses. He says, therefore, since we have such a, a large cloud of witnesses, all these people who have gone before us, surrounding us, let us lay aside every hindrance and sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us. Here's what we get to believe. Keeping our eyes on Jesus, the source or the author and perfecter of our faith. Listen to this. For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame of it, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He's saying, run the race, keeping your eyes on Jesus, on what he has accomplished. That for the joy set before him, he went to the cross, scorning its shame, the embarrassment of it, 
the rejection of it. We have a God who is himself vulnerable already because he created us in relationship with him. Therefore, from the beginning, we have the ability to reject him. That's vulnerability. And then we have this God who comes into the world naked like us, in the flesh. If you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. This is God incarnate, takes on the flesh of humanity, walking in its weakness, and yet walking in perfect unity with the Father, in innocence, in purity, in holiness, in constant communion with the Father, resisting the enemy's temptations, who, causes, who wants to shame him, who wants to bring doubt into his mind about his relationship with God, and he holds fast to provide you and me a way out of our doubts, out of our shame. We look to him, the author and perfecter of our faith, who allowed himself to be fully known for years by people, bringing them into his life, into his vulnerability, into his weakness, into even, I would argue, his fears as he announces them towards the end of his ministry. Genuine, innocent, not hiding. Why? To bring you out of hiding. To bring you into a fully integrated life, walking with God and with others in honesty and in a genuine relationship. I would again argue to be fully loved. You have to be fully known. (laughs) And that's what Paul tells us God does with us. Knows us fully. Loves us anyway. Loves us in all our mess and in all our brokenness. We have this God, this vulnerable God who puts on flesh, lives for years with people being open and honest, and he goes to the cross. How does Jesus go to the cross, friends? It's not often like the painting show. He goes naked, stripped bare, beaten, rejected, betrayed, Abandoned, the chief fear, I would argue, of humanity is abandonment and death. And Jesus takes both of them for our behalf, for us. Despising the shame of the naked cross. Despising its shame. Why? To free you and me from ours. To release us from our shame, from our brokenness, from our sin that weighs us down so heavily. You get to believe that that is the God of your life. That that is the God who wants to give you full life. We repent of the hiding, repent of of even believing the, the, the shame and say, no, 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 no more. I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm going to believe that there is a God who put on flesh for me. Who purchased this full life for me. And I'm going to walk it out in genuineness with with God and with others. A couple years ago, we went to uh, Montpellier. Is that the right way to say it? James Madison's house? Not a French expert. We go to James Madison's house and beautiful stately mansion from the early 1800s. Slowly expanded over time. Eventually, I think it was like 22 or 26 rooms or something. It was beautiful. But what we found out was that at one point, the DuPont family owned it, the DuPont of earlier, the arms race in the early 1900s, and then they switched to just chemicals. That's a whole other thing. Anyway, DuPonts owned this 
James Madison House, beautiful. I wish I'd gotten a picture of it. Eventually, the DuPonts added more and more and more onto this house, so eventually it ended up being 104 rooms, as opposed to its original 22. They added levels, they added a horse track out front, and they painted it pink. James Madison's house, he would have been horrified, painted it this bright pink color. And eventually the historical society takes it over and they're like, oh my gosh, what do we do with this? And so they slowly peeled back the layers, took off the third floor, got rid of the back half of the house that they built on, and they stripped off layers and layers of paint from over the years to get down to the original thing that it was originally meant to be. And it was an incredibly long and arduous and expensive process to do this, but only to eventually reveal it in its original glory the way that it was intended. Do you see where I'm going with this, friends? In our lives, we are like that. We add on all these other things, the rooms, the paints, all the, the add in all the extra furniture and all this stuff to just keep people from seeing what's really going on in there. And through repentance, we allow God and through the work of other people to start peeling away all the other stuff. All the other junk, the extra rooms we put on to hide the stuff in, all that furniture we don't want people to see, the baggage back there, the stuff in the closets, all that. Start peeling it away, peeling it away, peeling it away to get down to what the original thing that God created us to be. Made in his image, relating to him in a genuine way, relating to one another in a genuine way. All for his glory, for our good, for our full lives, and for his glory. But it's a work in process of confession of living in a genuine, open way. And you know what happens when we do that? We actually start to live integrated lives with a clean conscience, John tells us. Living for God's glory. God speaking into our hearts saying, this is what I've called you to. The community of saints around us saying, you know what you're really good at? You know how God has uniquely wired you? You're called to live this out in this way. And we start living out our gifting together for God's glory and for our good on mission with one another and with God to expand his kingdom out into the world. But it only happens if we're willing to be in relationship. Genuinely connecting to God and to others. Vulnerable. Emotionally naked, as it were allowing people to see what's really going on inside of there, fully known, fully known, finding that we're fully known and loved by God and by one another because people who found grace give grace. Co-creating with God the way we were originally intended to, bringing goodness and beauty into the world, doing the good works that God has prepared in advance for us to do. And we are living disintegrated lives we don't get to participate in the same way. There's, a, there's a, a gap between us and God and between us and others and us and mission. Friends, I say these things so that your joy can be complete, so that we can have full life as a congregation. And I would argue and plead with you to believe that this will only work if we all get on board. <laughs> If we all commit to actually be people of grace, to commit to point one another to a God of grace, not a God of shame and condemnation, this is why gospel saturation matters so deeply. Do you understand? We have to believe this. That's not true. We don't have to believe this. We get to believe this. 
and find full life in walking with God in fullness, in a genuine way, extending it to others, finding it from others, so that then we can live on mission with one another, telling the world about this very good God who has purchased this freedom for us. Friends, this is what it means to live in genuine connection with God and others. My prayer is that you will lean into that, being transparent and vulnerable with God all the time and transparent and vulnerable with a few here in this room. Let's pray together.